You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. Hi, you're listening to Sustainably Geeky. This is episode 52, and we're going to be talking today with Dr. Leslie Solomonian, who is a naturopathic doctor based out of Toronto in Ontario, Canada. And she's the host of the podcast, Raising Kids Naturally on the EcoParent Podcast Network. Um, So Leslie, thank you so much for being on today. And if you could just start by telling us a little about yourself and how you came to work in this field. Mm. Thanks so much for having me, Jennifer. Um, So I am a doctor of naturopathic medicine. I have been uh, teaching and practicing and living naturopathic medicine for the past 15 plus years. Um, I came to it because I always was a geek, which I know you you celebrate geekiness, um, academically. So I was always a good student and I was always really interested in math and science and particularly biology. And, And so, you know, the health of the human body always fascinated me. Probably this occurred to me later in my career, but I've always been an outdoors person. My parents exposed me to the natural world very, very young and, and sustainability very young. Um, but it was actually traveling to Japan uh, when I was 17 that really kind of switched gears for me away from being a medical doctor to being a naturopathic doctor. It was the exposure to concepts of holism, concepts of life energy, um, more of a, an all-encompassing universal energy that, that made me think a little bit differently about health and life and death and, and, uh, and spirituality. And so naturopathic medicine really was a beautiful merging of my academic geekiness in terms of the science and the math and the clinical stuff with my worldviews, which were about honoring the natural world, seeing connections between entities and the natural life force within all of us. So naturopathic medicine speaks to all of that in a really beautiful way. Yeah, I love that. And um, I I think it's it's really great that you point out the um, relationship, I guess, between science and nature, because I think a lot of times the assumption is that they're distinct opposites that you can't like both and that, you know, it's one or the other. Um, so I, I love the concept of kind of merging those things and seeing how they can work together because really, I mean, nature is part of everything and we may think we're separate from it, but you know, the truth is we rely on it for everything that we need in life from the air we breathe to the, the, you know, the resources that make up the stuff that we use every day. So, Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you know, we're all about geeky things, like you said, so (laughs) that as well. Um, so can you explain, um, what naturopathic medicine is and I guess how that differs from what people might consider the more traditional medical doctors? Yeah, that's a great question. I get it a lot, as I'm sure it doesn't surprise you. Um, it's an interesting point and, and I'll sort of riff off of what you just said. You know, often we think about the word science as being this uh, finite entity, this thing, it's a noun, but really I think of science as being a, a verb, it's a process, it's, it's curiosity, it's inquiry, it's, it's noticing things, observing things and being curious about them and asking questions and, and, and trying to learn and understand more about how the natural world works. And so the two are not mutually exclusive. Science is very much about understanding and, and learning and, and evolving, really. And so when people say, you know, trust science, trust the science, well, science is always changing. That's, that's the nature of science. And so to me, naturopathic medicine incorporates that inquiry, incorporates that curiosity in ways that 
I would say extend beyond what we traditionally think about as science. And, and in a Western Eurocentric world, we think about science as being this very reductionistic cause and effect linear kind of process. And so we think about there's a, an ailment, a disease, you do whatever it takes to eradicate that disease, whether, and, and I say all of these things, honoring that they're all useful and important and life-saving, but that's what a vaccine does. That's what an antibiotic does. That's what surgery does. That's what an anti-inflammatory does. Excuse me, you hear anti in a lot of those in a lot of those words. And naturopathic medicine is both about optimizing the body's capacity, its natural inherent capacity to find its own healing and balance. And, and we talk a lot in naturopathic medicine about optimizing the conditions for health. So the idea is, you know, we evolved as a species to cope with and survive a lot of things and to be able to retain our health. That that's part of what allows us to survive. But we need some of the ingredients that are necessary to do that. So good food and good water and, and effective sleep and minimal stress. And so naturopathic medicine does provide some strategies to be anti, to sort of treat the disease process. But it really emphasizes optimizing the body's capacity to find balance in its circumstances. So to me, that's how I really think about naturopathic medicine. Yes, we talk about using natural substances, herbs, and, and so on. And, and part of what's beautiful about that is even though we can study herbs using a you know classical scientific method, there's a lot of traditional paradigms and traditional ways of knowing that have taught us lots and lots and lots about the way plants work, for example, in a holistic way, as opposed to a, an isolated component of that. So the way I think about naturopathic medicine is it draws, it's multimodal, it draws a lot upon many healing paradigms across history and, you know, across space. It does incorporate the scientific method in terms of trying to understand the mechanism and the whys and hows of how the body works and how healing modalities work. But what's most critical to me is that it really honors the whole. It honors the whole system. It's not just about here's a disease, let's eradicate the disease. It's about how does the disease sit in the context of the whole person? How does the person sit in the context of the family, the community and the planet as a whole? So to me, that really speaks to the element of sustainability, both in terms of we know that we can't be healthy on an unhealthy planet. So if we're living in a sustainable way, that's gonna make it easier for everybody to be healthy in general but also by optimizing conditions for health rather than just using a very high resource intensive approach like surgery, like pharmaceuticals to eradicate diseases, we're actually having a smaller impact on the planet through the healthcare process as well. So I, I don't know if that was a very concise answer to your question, but it's how I think about what I do. Yeah. So, um, you know, what, what all of that makes me think of, I guess, is the folks who, when they have a health issue, um, they they go to the doctor and just want a pill or a quick fix or an operation, like you said, to kind of cut to the heart of it. And they don't really want to do the day-to-day -day work um, that might be more effective and, and actually, um, like you said, eradicating the, the root of the problem. Um, so is that accurate? I mean, in saying that, you know, naturopathic medicine is more about implementing those practices in your daily life rather than waiting for it to get to kind of a crisis mode where you have to have, or you think you have to have um, whatever. Yeah, that's a, a really insightful way of, of thinking about it. I, and you bring up an element that I didn't explicitly mention, which is prevention. 
And you know, prevention should be the heart of any healthcare system. There's an adage, and I, I, I don't know who the emperor was, but an ancient Chinese emperor paid his doctor to keep him healthy rather than to treat illness when it arose. So, so yes, naturopathic medicine is, should be very much about optimizing health, not just avoiding disease or treating disease, but actually making us healthier, making us more vibrant, more, more able to thrive. And, and our healthcare system currently isn't designed to do that. And I say our, I'm, I'm talking when I say our about sort of a biomedical Western European influenced kind of medical system. And, and so this reactionary approach to, okay, wait and, you know, eat crappy food, don't get enough sleep, be super stressed, you know, live in a toxic world. And then when the inevitable diseases arise, like we know that the most significant causes of death and, and suffering around the world really are, are diseases of lifestyle. It, it used to be infection and malnutrition and so on, but now it's more things like diabetes and cardiovascular disease and mental health crises and cancer. These are all by far dominated by lifestyle causes. And so, you know, if we could shift our thinking towards a more naturopathic way of, of approaching things, the emphasis would be on prevention. However, because most of us are immersed in this Western way of living and about acquiring things and convenience and, you know, hedonism, I would argue, um, we, we don't really think or talk about implementing, as you said, those lifestyle practices or behaviors. So yes, in a, an ideal sense, naturopathic medicine would be about exclusively optimizing health because we live in this paradigm where people don't tend to, and I say tend to, because a lot of people do, incorporate that. And frankly, we don't live in an environment that facilitates that or makes it easy in any way, shape or form. Um, people come to a naturopathic doctor often looking for an alternative to drugs or surgery. Some people get the idea, as you point out, that it is a process, that it is work that they need to do for themselves. Other people are still quite immersed in the paradigm of a quick fix. So the, the desire is, can you give me an herb that will do the same thing as the pill? Can you, can you do acupuncture to prevent the need for surgery, for example? And sometimes we can and sometimes we can't. But that's not, in my opinion, true naturopathic medicine. I say that, though, in, in the context of there's a place for everything. There's absolutely a life-saving place for surgery. There's absolutely a necessity for life-saving pharmaceutical drugs. What there's not a need for is major pharmaceutical corporations inventing new drugs and then inventing diseases that can be treated with those drugs. And yeah. so that, you know, that's, that's where naturopathic medicine really tries to, I would argue, counter the, the capitalism reductionism that is inherent in our culture. Yeah. And I think you brought up a great point of um, a lot of the issues, the health issues I think we see in the, the Western world um, are lifestyle, you know, issues, mm -hmm. like you said, um, and some of that can be reduced to choice, but, but some of that is also um, a result of the, the society we live in. Oh, and for absolutely. instance, I mean, in the U S and I don't know if it's this bad in Canada, but um, you know, everything has sugar in it. Yeah. Everything has high fructose corn syrup. And I mean, that has, we, we could go on about the, the subsidies <laughs> for the corn product yes. uh, crops and everything, but when it comes down to it, it's really hard when you go to the grocery store and you're, you know, maybe you're a single mom or you're just a college student or someone just trying to feed yourself. And you look at the labels and you're like, well, everything that I can afford mm -hmm. has sugar or some kind of yes. something that ends in oats that's going to, you know, give me, um, health problems. And, yes. um, you can do so much on your end, I guess, uh, is what I'm saying, but, but it all, it also goes back to the system that we live in and what mm -hmm. we have to work with. Okay. 
You're absolutely right. And, and what you raise brings up very important issues of equity and justice. And we know if we, if we look at people who've done analyses around causes of disease and health in, in a Western industrialized kind of world, something like 75% of health and disease is influenced by social and ecological determinants of health. That's not choice, that's not genetics. <laughs> that is the circumstances in which we live. It's the infrastructure, it's the social norms, it's the cultural norms, it's the literal environment in terms of air quality and so on. And so we know there's this idea of the inverse quarantine, which basically speaks to this idea that you just mentioned, that it's people who have privilege, it's people who have the resources, the money, the knowledge, the assets to be able to make, quote unquote, healthier choices, which then quarantines them from those diseases of lifestyle. It's everybody else who suffers because they don't have the privilege. They are marginalized in some way, whether it's economically marginalized or racially marginalized that prevents people from actually accessing the things that they really have a right to have. We all have a right to healthy food. We all have a right to food sovereignty in terms of being able to choose the food, the healthy food that is appropriate for our cultural heritage. We have the right to clean water and clean air and safety. And yet most people on this planet don't have those things. And that's a, a very deep issue of justice. So as a naturopathic doctor, you know, most people think about, okay, a doctor is a clinician and they work with patients one-on-one. -on -one. I actually moved away from one-on-one -on -one clinical practice because of exactly what we're talking about, because I was treating a very small proportion of the population who could afford and had the, the privilege to be able to choose to pay out of pocket for healthcare services that emphasize these principles. But what about all the other people who can't afford that? And, and certainly in a country like the US, people who can't even afford any healthcare, much less naturopathic healthcare. So I've shifted my teaching and my, I, I would call practice to advocacy, to public health. I do have a, a master's degree in public health as well. And my focus is very much on trying to modify and change the system so that more people are able to access those determinants of good health. And that requires systems change, as you point out. It's not about individual behavior. I, I yeah, I say all this recognizing there's there's always going to be a balance. I mean, there's, mm -hmm. there's some level of personal responsibility, but I think it's great that there are folks like you out there that are um, that that are trying to address this at a more macro level, and um, also you know show folks that yeah, you can you can also do some things. It's it, it's kind of going to take both and. It takes both ends, you got it. And, and I will say, Jennifer, that it's it's the people who who understand the, you use the word macro, so I'll use the word micro or nano level choices. So the, the choices we make, if I go to the grocery store to buy local, to buy seasonal, to minimize packaging choices, et cetera. But the people who have that awareness and the knowledge that that's important, and the people who have the privilege and the resources to make those choices, in my opinion, then have a responsibility to ramp it up to a more macro level. So they have a responsibility then to advocate so that other people who either don't know or can't choose those options um, aren't, aren't suffering as a result. Yeah, it is, it is so ironic that in one half of the world, we have people, you know, dying and, and getting sick from not enough food and and access to clean water, et cetera, et cetera. And then in another part of the world, you have people <laughs> dying and getting sick of obesity and mm -hmm. you know lack of exercise. And and you right. know it's it's just the the dichotomy there you know is just awful. And and I don't know how we fix that because um, you know it just seems like it should just be even. <laughs> it should just be even. Well, and just to throw another complication in that dichotomy, um, I, I think the same is true in the U.S., but certainly here in Canada, 
we have those what I'll call third world conditions right here within our own state borders. I mean, all of the people who are indigenous to Turtle Island who live oh, yeah. in reservations don't have access to clean water, don't have access to culturally appropriate food, don't have access to healthy food, period. And, and so it's, it's yes, you're right worldwide. And, and interestingly, I, I said earlier that, you know, it's not so much infection and malnutrition from a, a lack of access, lack of, you know, sufficient calories anymore, but actually those lifestyle diseases are the leading cause of morbidity and mortality worldwide, not just in Western countries. So the, the solution, the quote unquote solution to hunger in, in many developing countries or lower income countries is actually to provide <laughs> food or, or industrial agriculture practices that actually result in the same lifestyle diseases that we see here. So it's, it's pervasive. It's pervasive. Yeah. Wow. So this gives us a lot to think about. I think when we're, we're assessing, um, how we go about our own, you know, health needs. Um, so if someone, you know, maybe has heard of, of, um, naturopathic medicine or is thinking about giving it a go, um, what are some things they need to know? And what are some common misconceptions about the field? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so one thing I'll say is that naturopathic medicine is regulated or licensed in only about half of the states, provinces, and territories in North America. So it depends on the jurisdiction where you are. So it's really important. Um, there are six, I believe, naturopathic medical schools in North America that are accredited by the Department of Education. So regardless of the state or province that you're in, whether or not it's licensed, it's important to find out where the person you think you might want to consult with where they graduated from. So, so, you know, asking questions about where did you graduate from? Most people carry malpractice insurance and, and are registered with a, a jurisdictional college, even if, even if they're in a state that's unregulated. So that would be the first thing. Um, and in some jurisdictions, like in Ontario, where I am, naturopathic doctors are recognized legally as doctors and, and so have certain privileges in terms of healthcare practices. So I always use the example, I can do your pap smear and your, your prostate exam. And most people are like, oh, you're a real doctor then. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, people, people have the misconception that we're herbalists or homeopaths. And yes, we do use those medical approaches, but we're also trained as primary care doctors. And so that's a really important piece. I, I think that's a, a huge strength of the profession is we are just as well equipped to, uh, to navigate a health concern and diagnose it and assess it and choose the appropriate labs and imaging and so on that a medical doctor would with a different focus on holism, with a different focus on what are the determinants that are creating this concern in you. So that would be one thing I would emphasize is just making sure that if you're considering seeing a naturopathic doctor that you find out you know, where they studied and, and where they're licensed and if they carry malpractice insurance. That tells you a little bit about their professionalism. Um, the other thing is, and unfortunately, this isn't a misconception. I would say that within our profession, uh, we have fallen prey to capitalism just as much as, as medical doctors and big pharma have. So there are a lot of naturopathic doctors that probably are seduced, I suppose, by that quick fix as well. So I, I talked earlier about people saying, do you have a an herbal product that will do the same thing as an antibiotic. And yes, those exist. And there are some naturopathic doctors who are really good at that and who are really knowledgeable about the evidence for certain herbs and nutritional supplements and, and the way that they can benefit certain disease processes. 
I would argue that those aren't truly naturopathic approaches. They, they don't necessarily consider the whole. They might happen simultaneously with lifestyle and considering the whole and looking at the root cause. Um, but there are some people who go to see a naturopathic doctor and walk out not only with a bill for the visit, but also a very large bill for a, a bag full of bottles and supplements. So I often advise people to think about what they imagine they want out of an naturopathic doctor and then find the doctor who will meet those expectations. So if, if somebody comes to me, I often say to them, what did you hope to get out of today? What did you think you were going to get out of, you know, your visit with me? And if they say, well, a bunch of supplements, I would say, I think you might've come to the wrong place. Here's what I, my approach is, you know, maybe there's one or two that are, you know, strongly indicated, but I'm going to actually expect you to do some work. I'm going to expect you to do some introspection, to change some lifestyle practices, et cetera. If that's not something that you think you have the capacity for, um, you might be better off with someone else and let me help you find that person. Whereas if they come to me and say, you know, I'm really interested in working on my sleep habits and, and really reflecting on what's so tricky for me about sleep, then, then I might be their gal. So I think what's really important to acknowledge is that, you know, naturopathic doctors treat individuals who have health concerns, not the other way around, but also naturopathic doctors themselves are individuals. So I think it's really important that people have like a discovery conversation with the person that they think they might want to see, make sure that they're aligned in terms of those expectations and how that particular clinician works. Okay. Um, and you mentioned that, you know, there are certain schools that, that are accredited. Is there, yeah. um, I guess, a website or a resource yeah. that we could, that I could link Absolutely. to for folks to search for places near them? So there are national bodies in Canada and the U.S. So in Canada, uh, it is the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians. Um, I can I can type out the the URL for the website for you. Uh, and then in Canada, the national organization is the Canadian Association of Naturopathic Doctors. Now, not every practicing naturopathic doctor is licensed, or those aren't licensing bodies. They're they're membership associations, they're professional associations. So they're not everybody's a member, but those are the the quickest way to find an ND near you. Uh, but the other nice thing about it is both those websites actually list the provincial and and state associations as well. And most people who practice are registered with their provincial or state or territorial association just to make them easier to find. So that would be a, a good first place to go. Um, the Association of Accredited Naturopathic Medical Colleges or the AANMC is the uh, homepage for all of the accredited institutions in, in North America. So if people are curious about the training and, and where the schools are, um, that would be the place to go for that. Okay, great. Yeah, I, I just always find it um, helpful when I'm looking mm -hmm. for, you know, a new provider of anything, whether it's um, a doctor or a hairstylist or something, <laughs> to have, yeah. you know, you know, a one set reliable resource to kind yeah. of help me navigate that. Um, and so before we move on, um, you mentioned pricing or, or cost earlier. Yeah. And so I'm just curious, um, and, and this is probably going to be different in different countries, but um, is this kind of treatment, I guess, covered under insurance typically, or is it something that people will have to pay out of pocket? Um, how, do, how does billing work for something like this? Because, you know, in the US, I don't know if you've heard, but our, our medical billing is just disastrous. So. Yes, I'm, full, I'm, I'm quite aware. Um, as, you, as you anticipated, it's different from province to province, state to state, territory to territory. Um, in Ontario, I can use that. Well, in all of Canada, we have provincial universal health coverage. So our insurance programs are actually paid for by, by the province. 
And so unlike in the States where people have private insurance, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like your Medicare system, but everybody has it here. So uh, naturopathic medicine is not included in any of the provincial or territorial insurance programs in Canada. People do carry um, separate or third-party insurance in Canada, typically if they're on, in a salaried position, if they're employed by a company, many people will have extended benefits that way. And typically naturopathic practices like chiropractic, like physio, like psychology, um, like pharmacy would be covered under those extended benefits. My observation has been the extended benefits are pretty minimal for the most part. Um, generally, I would say those extended benefits might cover two, maybe three visits with an naturopathic doctor. Uh, in the States, I really can't comment extensively. I know that in places like Washington State and Oregon, for example, which I, I believe are some of the most extensive scopes of practice for naturopathic doctors in the US, um, I think that naturopathic doctors can actually bill Medicare and, and insurance coverage is somewhat comparable to medical doctors and doctors of osteopathy, but I, I think that's really variable from state to state. The one thing I'll say about that, it, it sort of goes both ways. On one hand, in, in Canada anyway, people are so accustomed to having healthcare be, and I put this in air quotes, free. It's not free, our taxes pay for it. And it's actually a huge proponent, a huge component of our, of our provincial budgets. Um, but people are so accustomed to be able to go to the doctor whenever they want for whatever they want. Um, I would argue that in some ways our healthcare system is insufficient in some ways and abused in other ways um, because people can't really discern and have never been asked to discern between what requires a doctor's visit. On the other hand, so I, I do think people should see the bill and should know what they're paying for and, and to some degree, you know, invest in their health. I think, I think people need to have, take more responsibility and be more accountable for their health. And for some people that involves paying out of pocket for the service. So, so I think there's an element of that. But as I was alluding to earlier, I, I strongly believe that access to good health care is a human right. And uh, World Health Organization actually argues that choice in health care is a human right. And that shouldn't just be which medical doctor do you go to, but what kind of healthcare provider do you see? So I would advocate, uh, and this is a huge shift in our system, but I would love to see naturopathic doctors, chiropractors, physios, be included within universal coverage so that people can choose who to go see. And currently that's not the way it is. So again, we have mm -hmm. that two-tiered system and that inequity in terms of who can access naturopathic care. Okay. Yeah, I, um, I just like any other, you know, health concern, it would, I, I would advise folks obviously to look at your personal insurance because mm -hmm. everything is different for every plan right. and every doctor, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, that's right. Yeah, I was just kind of curious at the overall trend. It sounds like while it's becoming more common, it's not typically um, included in the quote unquote standard coverage, um, even in a country like Canada that has the universal that's healthcare. Right. So that's yeah. interesting. Um, well, and just you know, for listeners, the, the universal coverage in Canada is really just access to physicians and, and drugs in hospitals. <laughs> so we say universal, we say free, but it's, it's actually neither. That's, that's a good distinction to have. And I think when we look at other countries, you know, from a U.S. standpoint, anything that we see, we consider, I don't know if we would just call it universal just because anything seems better than what we have, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely understand <laughs> I definitely understand that there's always room for improvement. And mm -hmm. even if I'm, I'm living in Ireland currently, and I came here thinking, oh, this system's going to be so much better. And I'm also finding that there are certain things that I didn't quite understand or anticipate um, that 
are better, but there are other things that are not as good. So I, I think, yeah, that'll, um, it, it's all a matter of perspective and doing your research. And yeah, yeah um, that's right. like you said, having the choice, hopefully. So, mm-hmm. um, okay. So for folks that might be interested in working in this field um, or learning more about it, you know, what kind of training is required and do you have any suggestions for anybody, you know, maybe looking to, to practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So the training is, I would say it's often mentioned that it's comparable to medical or osteopathic training in the US, um, in the sense that it requires an undergraduate degree. And then it's a four year postgraduate medical program. Um, very similar in content to traditional medical training in terms of chemistry and physiology and anatomy. Um, We do study pharmacy and pharmacology. Some states and provinces have the authority to prescribe drugs and and do some minor surgery. So so we have all of that training, plus all of the naturopathic modalities, as we call them. So all the different tools and paradigms that we use. So things like botanical medicine and nutrition, we have very extensive training in nutrition. Um, acupuncture in some schools, homeopathy, physical medicine. So we're trained to do spinal and joint manipulations, certainly not to the same degree as chiropractors, but sort of entry level, um, you know, general practitioner kind of stuff. So four years of that, um, typically the fourth year of our training is fully clinical um, under the supervision of, of licensed naturopathic doctors. And then there are some naturopathic doctors who go on to do a residency. Um, so I was one of those, typically they're two years. It's not a requirement the way that it is for medical doctors. So I would say that's where the training diverges. So for us, people can graduate after their four years and go straight into, you know, hang up their shingle and go straight into private practice. Um, whereas, you know, of course, medical doctors have to do some sort of specialization, whether it's family practice or otherwise. So, so that's, I'd say where it's quite different. Um, so yeah, in, in terms of people who are interested, the cost is, is not insignificant. It's multiple tens of thousands of dollars over the, the program and the caution. I mean, I love the profession, but I, I just want to be honest that the, the reality is unlike, you know, medical doctors, nurses, where, their services are, are always in demand and people rely on it uh, and you can almost always find a job um, and people are desperate for, for those professions. That's not true of naturopathic practice. There is a real entrepreneurial requirement of our profession. I think that is changing for some as we become more mainstream. There are positions that have been pioneered um, you know, within a, a conventional healthcare structure, community health center, integrative hospitals, that kind of thing. So they do exist and they're growing. But for most people, they come out and they open a business. You talked about a hairstylist. It would be kind of like that. Um, you know, you, you secure a space, you hire a clinic manager, and, and now you have to start marketing and recruiting patients and, and running your business. So people do need to be aware of that, that that's, it's not an easy road necessarily. And there's a whole skill set um, that, that's required above and beyond the practice of medicine. Um, that's something I struggle with, truthfully. I, I really struggle with the transactional nature of, of a healthcare practice, which is another reason why I stepped away. Okay, I guess we'll, I guess we'll move on and, and talk about um, your podcast then. Mm. Uh, so on your podcast, Raising Kids Naturally, um, you talk about how your kids' health and well-being reciprocally intersect with the health of their communities and the planet and offer practical strategies to optimize both. And that's from the description on your website. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the key takeaways or lessons you've had from the conversations on your show so far? 
yeah, you, it's a great question. You, you, well, I guess you read my, the description, but that kind of encapsulates it. So naturopathic medicine really emphasizes prevention. We talked about that earlier. And to me, nothing epitomizes prevention more than optimizing health in kids. So there's so much very compelling, very clear evidence that healthy kids are more likely to become healthy adults, not just because of behaviors that they establish or the environment that they grow up in and are more likely to stay in, but it actually changes the, the physiology and anatomy, the way children's bodies are built and, and the way they work. So if, if kids have as much healthy inputs as, as possible, they are more likely to be healthier adults. And, and as we spoke earlier, people who have the privilege to be healthy, people who have the privilege to have access to the determinants of good health do, in my opinion, have a responsibility and frankly are more likely to contribute more effectively to the wider world. They have a greater capacity to do so. So, so for me, the conversation about raising kids in a, a healthy way is about optimizing the health of those individuals, those children and the adults that they're going to become, but also talking about the ways in which it's not just about genetics, not just about you know, the burden on the family, particularly mothers, but the responsibility of the entire community to optimize the health of those children. And then reciprocally, the way that healthier children become healthier adults and the responsibility that they then have to make the world a healthier place for everyone else. So that's kind of the crux of it. Uh, I, I talk often about pillars of health and to me, those are those determinants of health. How do we optimize sleep in children? Why is it important? What happens if they don't get enough? And what can we do to make it better? food for children? What does that look like? You know, what happens if they don't get adequate nutrition, too much, too little, not the right nutrients, et cetera, and, and how we can sort of provide some hacks around that. Um, we talked about, um, oh, what else? Stress management and, and strategies that families can use to help their children cope with stressors in, in their world and in their lives and, and why that's important and what that does to health in the long run. Um, so really each of the episodes has focused on these pillars of health. I'm, I'm super excited. Uh, I don't know if you know the, the children's musician Rafi. He's a Canadian Armenian children's musician that I grew up with and he is a strong advocate for children's health and a healthy planet. And so he was my most recent interview, which was such an honor. Um, and he talked beautifully about honoring children and the importance of, of giving children unconditional love and, and the way that that influences their health and well-being as they grow up and, and their capacity to influence the health of the planet. So, so really the whole podcast is about that reciprocity, that micro that we talked about earlier up to the macro that we talked about earlier and then back again. Um, the episodes, of course, are centering on children, but everybody can benefit from those strategies. Children are precious and special, but not that special. <laughs> I joke that I do pediatrics, not because I particularly enjoy children. I mean, I say that facetiously, they're, they're fabulous, but because of the influence that a healthy childhood has on the rest of a child's life. So much so that the World Health Organization, uh, the Canadian Public Health Association, acknowledged this. It's it's a critical component of lifelong health. Yeah, and um, like you said, you know everything you just listed when you're talking about kids, I'm thinking in my, yeah, oh, that's stuff I should do, or you know, yeah. get more sleep, eat healthier, et cetera, et cetera. So hopefully, as people are listening to this, they're all literally taking those messages in for their own health and mm -hmm. <laughs> life in general. Mm -hmm. um, and I. And I I do think it's it's a good um, outlook to see how really everything kids are learning or, or, or you know doing today is going to affect them for the rest of their lives. 
Um, in our last month's episode, um, Chris, who's on our show, um, one of our hosts, uh, said that she, when when she looks at you know how she raises her kids, she doesn't look at it as I'm raising kids. She she thinks I'm raising adults. Yes, so, you know, looking absolutely. at it from that mindset, <laughs> I, I'm trying to raise an adult eventually. Yes, yes, that <laughs> is one of my mantras. Know. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, since you you know uh, work in the field of you know not just pediatrics but overall health and and trying to help people learn how to live healthier and also addressing the system. Um, you know, this is something that, uh, this is a question that I've kind of grappled with for a long time, especially as, you know, we see how the state of the world is is going in the climate crisis and everything. And so I just, I'm curious to kind of get your insights on this. You know, we hear a lot more about how bleak the future is in terms of the climate emergency and resources and, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and biodiversity and all these things. Um, and then we also, hear about just the the kind of world we're, we're looking at future generations inheriting. Um, there's been a lot of talk about whether or not, you know, people should even have kids in this. Mm. Um, interesting that you asked that question. I have two children of my own. I have two teenagers. One is officially, legally an adult, although we know that our, our bodies and brains in particular don't fully mature until somewhere in our mid-20s. So I'm still raising him, but the idea of having children in, in this particular time and place in the universe is a, is a pretty dire question. My eldest has said to me, and of course things can change, that he has no intention of having children. I, I don't know that he would say it's an ethical position or a, a fear-based, I'm not sure what he would say. Ironically, I just participated in a documentary being put together by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation that will be airing in in the fall. Um, So I'll let you know when when that's live. But it was on this very topic. It's a documentary looking at precisely this dilemma. Do people who are of childbearing age now, do they have a moral responsibility to have children, to not have children? What do we anticipate the world will be like for those children in the future? Do we anticipate that that children are going to be living in a world full of of conflict and strife and forced migration? Will there be wars in the Great Lakes region where I live because we have the vast majority of the world's fresh water here at our feet, literally? Um, Will the air be too polluted to breathe? Will the temperatures be too hot to survive? You know, every single summer in Toronto is hotter than the one before, the hottest on record than the one, you know, than the one before. So, so it's a, it's a real conversation. When I participated in this documentary, I was the only person in the group who had actually had children already. Um, Everybody else was in a position of, of deliberating and debating on whether or not they, they might have children. Um, And I heard lots of really interesting things that, you know, the fear, of course, what, what kind of world am I bringing potentially a child into? There were also positions of, of morality. You know, we know that to some degree overpopulation is, is a massive contributor to the climate crisis. That becomes a bit of a justice conversation as well, because of course, reproductive rates in you know, westernized countries tend to be low compared to lower to middle income countries. And we actually rely on immigration in Canada to make our, our population stable. 
So, you know, the, the idea of overpopulation is a controversial one and, and uh, an issue of justice and, and ultimately racism. Um, it's really more about the consumption by individuals who live on the planet. So, so you know, we'll, we can talk about that piece a little bit later. But, uh, you know, part of the conversation that was had was around the moral responsibility to have children, that having children is a sign of optimism. It's a sign of hope that, that there's a, you know, there's something beautiful in this world and something worth living for. Um, we talked about the concept that those of us who are very mindful of the climate crisis and the root causes of it, the, the isms that contribute to it, you know, we have the opportunity to, to raise children who will become adults who will actually engage themselves in, in changing those systems. So I, I don't know that there's a clear answer. I, I think that there's lots of elements that are contributing to the mental health crisis among youth that we're seeing in these times, both because of the state of the climate as well as you know global pandemics and and huge concerns about housing and the and the economy and 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 so it, it it's complicated. Um, I certainly support my children in choosing not to have babies of their own. <laughs> I have no attachment to being a grandmother. Um, I think the best thing all of us can do is follow our hearts to learn as much as we possibly can and to, to some degree, discern between what we can control and what we can't control. And, you know, a lot of people throw up their hands and say, well, you know, the climate crisis is too big, too complicated, too scary. There's nothing I can do about it. So I'm not even going to try. Um, I know I, as an activist, often get accused of being a hypocrite because I show up and, and demand systems change. And then, you know, I rely on fossil fuels in my home to heat my home in the winter. I, I have had children. So, you know, I've been told many times that I'm a hypocrite. And, and to me, that that's a, a logical fallacy because the reality is we can't opt out. And so whether we do or don't have children, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the, the argument that should be had or the conversation that should be had. I think I think people need to think about how they live their lives day to day and the way they make the world a better place rather than a worse one. Um, and whether or not we choose to have children is just one part of, of that deliberation. Yeah, I, I guess I'll just say, um, yeah, my own thoughts on, on this question, you know, are very complicated. Obviously, I, I'm, I'm reaching an age where I'm running out of time if I do want to have kids. So, you know, it's kind of like you got to you feel the pressure, I guess, of, of biology, but then also I know that I just, I don't want to have kids on my own. And if, if I don't have a partner and, and it doesn't look like I will anytime soon, um, the choice may be made for me. I'm still very torn on um, what to do. And I'm always interested in other perspectives. Cause I think this is something that people are um, thinking about a lot more these days, especially as yeah. um, like you said, there's so many things impacting the world um, that make life so much harder other than just the climate, the economy economy and just, you know, jobs and, and yada, yada, yada. So um, what the answer is, but I appreciate you kind of sharing your thoughts and um, mm -hmm. giving me and, and other listeners some things to think about. Mm. Well, is there anything else that we haven't touched on um, in relation to, I guess, living healthier, you know, or, or in, in tune with nature or just any resources you'd want to share with our listeners um, before mm. we move on? Yeah, well, I think one thing I would say in terms of my position as a naturopathic doctor and the, the concept of sustainability, it's interesting because I've been advocating at my institution where I teach for the last number of years, even though our oath says that we vow to preserve the health of the planet, I don't 
think that the concept of sustainability has had a central role in our training or frankly in, in the professional practice community that I'm part of. And it's an interesting thing to ponder because we know that healthcare, the healthcare system has a tremendous impact on the planetary health crisis, both in terms of the ways in which uh, you know, conventional medical practice produces a tremendous amount of waste, the ways in which there is a huge implicit bias and, and racism baked into the healthcare system, just like it's baked in everywhere else. Arguably, naturopathic medicine is inherently more sustainable. Now, I mentioned earlier that you know, the, the supplement, the, the lean on supplements, the seduction of a quick fix, um, that I would argue is not sustainable. It's, it's not as harmful to the planet as pharmaceuticals are inherently, but, but it's you know, still not sustainable. But lifestyle practices and optimizing healthy food and getting outside the benefits of being immersed in nature, forest bathing, outdoor physical activity, all of those things are, are inherently good for our health because it's what we evolved in. We evolved as a species in a natural setting, eating food that was as close to the earth as possible in its minimally processed form. And so arguably, optimizing conditions for health means going back to a more sustainable lifestyle. There are co-benefits to human health and to planetary health. And when we make choices that are beneficial to not only individual health, but also to the planet, it allows other people to also be healthier. And so I guess I would argue that a naturopathic approach to health is inherently more sustainable, whether or not we call it that. Talking about a plant-based diet, talking about active transportation, so walking or biking to where you need to go rather than driving, um, talking about changing you know, city design and urban infrastructure to accommodate that, to, to minimize the focus on car traffic and, and optimize and, and make active transportation more possible, increasing green space and, and tree canopy in urban environments to make sure that we're not degrading agricultural land with development or war. We know that many of the conflicts in the world right now have a lot to do with the changing climate and, and food insecurity and lack of water. So, so when I think naturopathic medicine, I think about co-benefits, you know, people think, well, what can I do? I can't possibly do anything to, to change the planetary health crisis, et cetera. But I would say those little bits do make a difference, not just for our own health, but for everybody's health. So when we prioritize eating more fruits and vegetables, ideally ones that are grown locally and seasonally so that we're, we're you know, supporting the local economy and local farmers and enhancing the biodiversity of, of the land in which we live, um, that benefits not only our own bodies, our bodies love, love. and crave the, the nutrients that are in those foods, but it also supports a system that prioritizes the growth of fruits and vegetables. You know, when we minimize, you talked about high fructose corn syrup, when we minimize our consumption of processed foods that contain those, we're not only benefiting our own bodies, which, you know, an immense amount of evidence saying that, but it also increases justice because we know that the production of, of sugars and, and corn syrups and so on has a huge impact on the livelihood and well-being of, of farmers and biodiversity again, and the way people can have, you know, practice of subsistence agriculture. So all of these effects are reverberating and reciprocal. And so I guess that to me is the bottom line in terms of what can each of us do? We're all at a different point in our journey of our own health, as well as in our journeys around living more sustainably for the planet. I guess I would encourage everybody to 
just be more mindful. And when I say that, I mean, very, very um, uh, explicitly mindful, which means paying attention. Mindfulness just means paying attention, pausing, paying attention, noticing thoughts, noticing feelings, noticing the physical experience. So when we're at a market or a grocery store and we're reaching for that thing that's being so strongly marketed to us that contains high fructose corn syrup or has, you know, a neat package or whatever, pausing and noticing what is it that's, that's motivating me to reach for this? Am I hungry? Am I, uh, is my brain being seduced by the marketing? Is it cheap? You know, what is it that's, that's influencing me to want to make this choice, whether it's food, whether it's a new car, whether it's the new phone, whether it's fast fashion, like what is it pausing, noticing, doing whatever we can do to resist the urge. I'm not saying even don't buy it in the end, go ahead and buy it in the end, but buy it mindfully. Be aware of what we consume. There's this concept around conspicuous consumption, this idea that the marketing world has been so powerfully effective in convincing us that we will be happier, healthier, better somehow if we consume these things, especially if other people see us consuming these things. So pausing, outsmarting, you know, in terms of back to parenting, that's something I talk to my kids and other people, other people's kids all the time is you have to be smarter than the marketers, whether it's related to the use of your phone or the foods that you're tempted to buy or, you know, the, the vapes, whatever it happens to be. We have to be smarter. We have to listen to our own bodies, listen to our own intuitive ancient wisdom that's literally in our DNA. And sometimes that requires education and knowledge about, you know, what constitutes good nutrition, but sometimes it's just doing what our bodies know is best. You know, one of my favorite areas of study is, you know, we talk about chronotypes and, and some people who are night owls versus, you know, morning people and, and the way our sleep cycles can be really disrupted and impacts on insomnia and so on. And there's some researchers who, who look at populations that just spend a couple of nights in a natural setting with only natural sources of light, you know, the moon, the stars, the sun, maybe some fire. Um, and within two days, their chronotypes regulate, their, their internal clock regulates, their melatonin levels reset. It's amazing what just making some deliberate choices to step away from the human built, the human marketed capitalism influenced world can do both for our own health as well as for the health of everyone else. Yeah. And it is amazing. The things that we don't even realize are so ingrained in us um, that we have to unlearn when it comes to that, you know, mm. you said marketing. I mean, I used to be, and I still struggle with this and I was a sucker for a good deal. I mean, I grew <laughs> up with a mom who couponed, who, who chased the sale and you know, so that was kind of ingrained in me. Like, even if you don't need it, it's a good deal and you might need it someday. And so, right. you know, for years I just bought, them. they were on sale. And then, you know, you get to a point though, where you realize, wait, I'm buying this and then it's going bad before I can use it. So it's really not that good of a deal if I'm not actually, you know, I'm just basically spending money on it to throw it away or to, you know, let it go bad. So, um, right. it, it was one of those things where I had to really step back and think, why am I buying this? Do I need mm. this? Will I use this before? You know, do I need three bottles, whatever this is, or, mm -hmm. um, you know, should I just get one, pay a little more for it, but actually use it versus, mm -hmm. you know, tossing half of it. So, mm -hmm. um, well, and it's a good point too, because uh, often, you know, one of the things, if, if we think about nutrition, we know that a plant-based diet, so eating less meat is, is good for our bodies and good for the planet. We know that eating less sugar is good for our bodies and good for social justice. We know that, you know, consuming less processed foods 
is good for our bodies and, and good for biodiversity, for example, less packaging, et cetera. But people, you know, you pointed out, sometimes that's more expensive. And yes, sometimes it is. However, less meat in general, <laughs> then we can afford in theory to support farmers and agricultural practices that are more sustainable. So it's it's about that deliberation. It's it's not just, and, and to your point, you're not alone in this. It's not just when something's cheapest is it of greatest value. Things are of good value when they satisfy a need that we or someone else or the world around us actually needs. And there's a very distinct difference between a need and a want. And I guess that would be the thing that I'm referring to, you know, to for people to grumble that buying fair trade sugar is expensive. Well, most of us eat way more sugar than we should anyway. So if we eat less of it, then we can afford to support the farmers and the land that is producing it for us in, in a more sustainable and just way. So I guess that would be my number one recommendation. And it's not inherently naturopathic, but I, I think ultimately it is at its, at its core is to consume less. And I don't just, I don't mean, you know, go on a diet, I absolutely don't mean that. I mean, consume less, be more deliberate, be more mindful. What need is this consumption satisfying, whether it's food or a, a product that you're purchasing or a trip that you wanna take, or even media that you might be consuming. Be thoughtful, pause, consider what need is this satisfying? And is there a way I can satisfy this need in a way that's healthier for me and or healthier for the world around me and, and be thoughtful about it. And sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is I just want the damn cake or I just wanna binge this show or I really want this new phone. But if you're gonna do it, then, then be thoughtful about it. Be slow about it, be grateful for it, savor it. Because I think a lot of times we consume a lot, we consume fast, we consume without thinking. And ultimately, it doesn't make us healthier, it doesn't make us happier, and it causes a lot of destruction around the planet. So that would be my number one recommendation is for all of us, whenever we have the urge to consume something, to slow down and reflect on why we're feeling that urge. What is the need it's satisfying? Is this truly going to make me healthier, happier? Is this making the world a better place or a worse place? Not to feel guilty about it but to be more deliberate, to savor those moments, to be grateful for what we have. Um, to me, that is a sustainable way of living. Are there any other resources that you would share with our listeners if they wanna learn more about anything we talked about today or just any you find particularly helpful in your daily life? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I mean, my website is full of my blog, which is usually just, it's literally called my musings on some of these ideas. People are more than welcome to reach out to me if they have questions or ideas on any particular thing. Um, you know, the Planetary Health Alliance is, is an interesting resource that's, that's coming to my mind right now. You know, what we know about the state of our planet is that the solution, the many solutions, the complex solutions, have to center justice and have to be cross-disciplinary. And the Planetary Health Alliance is a really great association organization that, that nurtures that kind of community, that nurtures that kind of diverse approach to the many solutions to the many problems that, that are going on in our world right now. So, you know, for people who are interested in kind of digging in, I think, I think that would be an interesting place to go. Um, you know, it's tricky because there's so many parts, moving parts to the planetary health crisis and so many moving parts to the solutions. There's so many different resources. Um, 
I do have an upcoming book for parents uh, that's the companion to my textbook for naturopathic trainees on naturopathic pediatrics. So um, again, my website would be the most appropriate place for people to look for, for the announcements around that. Um, and in both that book, as well as in my podcast, I simply can't avoid talking about parenting children from a naturopathic perspective without talking about sustainability, without talking about planetary health and, and the way that our choices are influenced by and thus influence the health of the communities in which we live. So, so I would say, you know, on, on these particular ideas, um, the podcast, as well as my upcoming book and my website are probably where you're going to get a lot of my, my food for thought. So people are welcome to reach out to me through that avenue. Awesome. Um, well, I guess we'll move on now to what we call our green life hacks, uh, where we share uh, just one thing that our listeners can do to help them live more sustainably or reduce their carbon footprint. So mm-hmm. um, do you have a green life hack for us today, Leslie? I, I, I think that what I was talking about earlier is probably my hack. It's, it's slowing down and reflecting before we consume. Really, I would argue that capitalism and the you know, imperialism, the systems that exploit people and land to, to produce wealth for, for a small section of the population is the root cause of the planetary health crisis and the ways in which that capitalistic system has convinced all of us that we need to consume, again, whether it's food or media or products. So that would be my hack. It would be practicing mindfulness and, and mindfulness is practiced ideally with non-judgment and curiosity and compassion for, for oneself. So whenever there's that urge to consume food, media, shopping, products, whatever it is, to question, to pause, to notice what's my urge, what are my thoughts, what are my feelings, what am I hoping this is going to satisfy? And then deciding if we really do need it, do we need to follow through on that? Again, without judgment. If the decision is yes, I do, then be grateful, savor, enjoy, do it slowly appreciate it. (laughs) Check in with ourselves. Did I actually satisfy the thing I thought I was going to satisfy? Learn from it. That would be my hack. And it takes practice. It's, it's something that should be integrated into our moment, moment to moment. Um, What we know from the science and what I know from my lived experience is that the more we do that, it's amazing how much less we realize we need (laughs) to be happy and healthy. Um, And I think if we all do a little bit more of that, um, those of us who work hard to advocate for systems change might have to do a little less. And that gives people like me a bit of a rest, (laughs) which I would appreciate. Yeah. And that, you know, what you said without judgment, that is key and that is hard because um, I think, you know, we all kind of tend to be harder on ourselves than others would be, but, but I know I really struggle with everything I do, you know, every little mistake I I'm overly critical or I overthink it, or you wouldn't think this way or treat your friends this way um, or your family or whatever. So have the same grace with yourself that you have with other people. And <laughs> that's a hard, that, that's a hard yeah. thing to remember sometimes. Saying my green life hack um, is, is in line more, I guess, with what we were talking about, um, just eating healthier and eating um, more local and buying seasonally. Um, but my um, specific hack is to give the ugly produce a chance. Um, <laughs> I love that. Um, <laughs> A lot of times we'll see the picture perfect, you know, banana or apple or, or tomatoes or whatever. Um, but 
there's a lot of produce that doesn't always come out that pretty. And it, a lot of times because capitalism gets thrown wasted or whatever. So, yeah, I love that. I love and, that. and I'll, I'll add to, to both of these practices, the non-judgment piece and the, the try the, the less than perfect produce, um, my minister says that part of the job of a minister, and I think this came from journalism, is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I think because of capitalism, we've been lulled in a high income setting like ours to believe that you know we deserve to be comfortable and that you know we we deserve all these things. We're entitled to, you know, the perfect fruit and the, you know the the latest phone and all of these things. And so, yes, no judgment. Yes, minimize that judgment. You're not a you know shameful human for wanting those things. It's totally natural because you've been told your entire life that you deserve to have them. But to extend yourself a little bit beyond that comfort zone. So I, I tend to be here to afflict the comfortable <laughs> and not in the form of judgment, but in the form of slight discomfort. So, you know, what is the edge of your comfort zone in terms of ugly fruit? What is the edge of your comfort zone in terms of, you know, saying no to the latest and greatest phone or fashion or whatever? And, and in that pause, in that breath, in that moment of saying, oh, that banana looks ugly, you know, check in with yourself. What's that about? What are you afraid of? What's the discomfort in that? And, and can you sit with that discomfort? Can you get it anyway? Can you, you know, actually I consider whenever I buy the ugly fruit or the day old bread or whatever, I consider myself, I'm doing a good deed. You know, can, can you frame it that way for yourself? Can you, you know, pat yourself on the back for saying, I kept this food out of the landfill and reduced the methane emissions from its decomposition, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's lots of different ways of, of looking at it and, and balancing that lack of judgment of, of ourselves with a little bit of discomfort. It's okay. It's okay to feel like, Ooh, maybe, maybe this isn't a great thing for me to be doing and, and what could I do instead? And so, yes, that slightly outside the comfort zone piece is really important for all of us. Yeah. I just love that uh, flick to the comforted because mm -hmm. yeah, we, we, we all can get way too comfortable in whatever situation we're in and, and, um, yeah, I don't think we grow in our comfort zones, you know, and, right. and, um, yeah. And I, it's funny you say that about, um, you know, feeling like you've accomplished something or you've done your good deed. Cause I, this is a silly little thing, but when I would shop at the grocery store back in Texas, they would always separate the single bananas that fell off into like a little pile. So I would always buy like two or three of those. Cause I just used <laughs> a whole bunch. And to me, that was like, that was my big, you know, I felt so accomplished for something so stupid, but in my mind, it was like, these guys weren't going to make it, you know, nobody yeah. would want the one banana. And I got, I saved two of them from the pile, but. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. My husband does that too. He's a big, uh, likes to rescue the fruit that falls on the floor. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And the dented cans and whatever. And, you that's know, right. it's some money too. So that's right. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for being on Leslie and, you know, your patience with the technical difficulties on my end. Um, nice. This has been a great conversation and um, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Um, I am also um, going to be on your show, I think, coming out around the same time. So um, listeners want to be looking for that conversation. Um, when did you say that was going to be? Well, I, I have to apologize, Jennifer. I think I'm bumping Rafi ahead of you. <laughs> but I think by doing that, uh, oh, you'll actually get more listeners because he, <laughs> oh, our, I mean, he's a celebrity, but we also, our conversation really helped to set up ours, the one that you and I had. So I think I'm going to put him okay. first and then, uh, and then yours, I think will get more traction. So I will let you know when it's okay. uh, being aired. No, I, I appreciate just being able to, you know, be on there at all. So um, yeah, listeners, um, check that out if you want to hear our conversation a little different from this one, but, but 
some of the same themes um, throughout. Uh, so where can our listeners find you online if they want to follow you or learn more about what you're yeah, that's a, so my name, I'm the only one in the world with my name. So if you were to Google my name, you'll find pages and pages of references to me. Um, it's a little bit masturbatory to Google oneself, but that does happen. Um, my website is lesliesolomonian.weebly.com. Um, so again, just Google my full name and, and you're going to find me and not too much else. Um, the podcast is on the EcoParent podcast network. So looking that up, uh, you'll land on it. There's six in the network and they're all great. So check those out. Um, but probably my website is, is packed full of stuff about me and my thoughts about the world and references to other things. So that's probably the easiest way to find me. Okay, great. And are you or the show on social media? The show is on social media, so it's at EcoParent. Um, EcoParent is a multimedia platform, so not just the podcast, but print magazines. I'm a regular columnist for them as well. So just EcoParent on on uh, both Instagram and Facebook, and and I too am on both Instagram and Facebook, just under my my own name. So feel free to find me there. I'd love to hear from from folks. Great, and you can find me um, personally on this show and occasionally marginally geeky and ethically geeky, which is our parent show. Um, and then you can find me on Facebook and Twitter, or Instagram and Twitter at Het's Gonna Be Me. Um, and you can find the show itself on any site that you listen to podcasts, um, YouTube and Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Sustainably Geek. So thank you all again for listening. If you have topic suggestions or guest ideas, um, feel free to email or send those to us through social media and have a great rest of your day. This has been a presentation of the Epically Geeky Network.